Amen. And you may be seated. Well, last time that we met together for our study of uh, James, uh, James commanded his scattered and battered congregation, and he did so in a way that seemed very insensitive and really borderline impossible. He told them, he said, listen, you need to, and here's the command, that when you face trials and some of the greatest difficulties in your life, some of the greatest pains, some of the greatest losses and sufferings, you should, as a believer in Jesus Christ, he said to them, he said, you should face those things with all joy. You should face it with all joy. Now, what's amazing about that command is it wasn't just for those who lived in the first century, but rather that is a command of God for all of God's people, for all of God's time, so that, or for all time, so that you know that you and I are to do the same thing. When difficulties come our way, we're not supposed to run around like chickens with our heads cut off, thinking it's the end of the world. We are instead, as believers in Jesus Christ, supposed to face that struggle, face that trial with joy. Now, if you didn't hear that sermon, you need to go back and listen to it, because we talk a great deal about how just difficult and almost impossible that is, unless you understand something. Unless you understand that God has a marvelous, amazing way of taking the worst trials and difficulties and turning them, out, turning them around for our good. He takes those trials, he takes those troubles, and he literally grows our faith, he matures our faith, and here's the ultimate plan that God has for us to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. So what we learned was when we understand that, when we understand God's purposes of why he allows these difficulties and even orchestrates these difficulties to come our way, when we understand that it's for our good, then we can, by faith, be faithful to God, knowing what the ultimate outcome is going to be. Now, with that said, James knows that we're going to need more than that. That's a good start. It's great for us to go in this with a positive attitude and with hope, believing that this is all going to work out. But he says, but if you're going to remain faithful in the midst of that trial, if you're going to know how to navigate through this in a faithful way unto God and get to the other side and be what I want you to ultimately be, it's going to take more than just a positive outlook. His first command for us when we go and face difficulties, first is this, the command was to consider. That is to consider it all joy. Now, the second command, he says, that we must do immediately once we enter in trials and come face-to-face with trials is that we must ask. So there are going to be three things that we're going to do. We're going to really ask a series of three questions that are going to navigate through this particular text. The first is this. He commands us to ask. So the first question is, what are we to ask? What are we to ask? Now, look at the beginning there in the very first verse. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What James is simply saying is there's going to come a time in your life, whether you believe it or not, that you're going to face a certain trial or difficulty and you're not going to know what to do. You're going to be, believe it or not, speechless, clueless on how to navigate through that. There are believers in Jesus Christ that their children will come home, somebody, probably within celebration, somebody's child who will come and say, listen, I'm pregnant, I'm going to have a child out of wedlock, and for those parents, that's going to be a lot for them to swallow and they're not going to know what to do. There's going to be some people right here in the, in, in the body of celebration Well, they're going to come and they're going to say, hey, honey, listen, I've got news. I've, I've lost my job and there's no chance of me getting it back. And at that point, they're not going to know what to do. There are going to be some that come back and believe that they've raised Christian children and those Christian children will look at them possibly one day and hopefully not and say, I just don't believe in your God anymore. And you're going to be clueless on what in the world to be able to do. 
So James says that every single one of us will come to a point that we're not sure what to do. And get this, that time, that period of time that you're going through that is going to last a lot longer than what you want it to. That's how trials work. Trials don't come and go immediately. They usually take a long time for us to go through. So if we're going to go through it, don't we need the wisdom of God to know what to do when we're in the midst of it? And so what he says is, he says, if you're going to make it, what you need and what all of us need is we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic, and I certainly don't want it to be demeaning because of all the bright and wonderful scholars that we have here today. But let me suggest this. Do we really know what wisdom is? Do we know what wisdom is? It's not to be confused with knowledge. Knowledge is really dealing with the facts of just about anything. Uh, people have a lot of knowledge. Our world is filled with knowledge. You usually get knowledge in the classroom. That's where you find it. But wisdom doesn't come from the classroom. And so what James is ultimately saying here is this, is he says, listen, you don't just need wisdom, or you don't need just knowledge, you need wisdom. Wisdom is the application and the working out of that knowledge. It's taking it and be able to put it to use for you. And he says, that's what you need, and that's what I need from God when we're facing these trials. But notice, he doesn't mean just any kind of wisdom. It means divine wisdom, godly wisdom. Notice who he says that we're supposed to be going to, to God to God for the source of godly wisdom. Proverbs tells us very clearly from the get-go that there's two different types of wisdom in this world. There's, there's worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom and two different types of wisdom that could not be any more different than those two things. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, it says this, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, that's human wisdom. And he says, but its end is the way to death. Not good, right? Just, just FYI, not good. Human wisdom leads to death. Then, he sa- then in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, says this, the author, Jesus, uh, the author writes, for my, or God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your ways. Simply, briefly, James just sits there and says this, you find yourself in a position that you don't know what to do. You need to seek God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. Here's another thing. If you're in a situation and you think you know what you're supposed to be doing, you better make sure that what you're doing is is steeped in God's wisdom and not the world's wisdom. You say, why is that so important? Because it's the difference between destruction and perfection. If you go the way of the world, it's going to lead to destruction and pain. If you go the way of God, it's going to lead into perfection in Christ's likeness in Jesus Christ. Now, perfection, I don't mean that you're actually going to become perfect before you're glorified. But what I mean is that's the goal, to become more like Jesus Christ. James' point is this, and listen to it very carefully. The spiritual perfection that is the goal of trials. You get that, right? Why trials? Why me? Because you're not perfect yet. When will they end? When you're perfect. Okay, that's when the trials will end. He says, so the goal, so the spiritual perfection that is the goal of trials will be achieved only when divine wisdom is present. Last week I said there's a lot of people that are going through trials, but you're not seeing them become more like Jesus. Why? Because they're lacking wisdom. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to navigate it. So here's my first two questions for you. The first is this, is do you have God's wisdom? Stop and think about it for a moment. We have a lot of folks going through a lot of different things. We have people who are unhealthy. We have marriages that are falling apart. We, we, we have all of these things, and we're, we're praying that God will do a miracle and work in all of these things. But in your particular difficulty, do you, are you assured that you have the wisdom of God and that you're living by it and navigating through it? Do you believe that's how you're dealing with the situation that you're in now? 
Here's the second question. The second question is, the first is, is, do you have God's wisdom? The second question is, where do you go when you need wisdom? That's the most important thing. It amazes me to see so many believers and them running around trying to get help and trying to figure out where they can find out the answers to their life. And, and, and here's the deal is a way that you can know whether you're seeking divine wisdom or worldly wisdom is to consider the source that you find yourself consistently go for to find the answers to life. Where do you go? And the answer to that is probably um, the world and God, because I think that's how we often work these things, right? Where do you go? This is what we should be doing. We should be going and seeking wisdom from God, who is an all-wise, all-knowing God. Yes, great place to be able to go. We ought to be seeking him. And how do we often do that? Well, what we do is we go into the word. And I love this. I love when believers will come to me and they're like, Mike, I have been studying God's word There's a problem going on in my life, and I need to know what God says about it. And I've been studying. This is what I think it means. And then they'll say to me, what do you think it says? And and, and I love this, because this happens very rarely. They'll actually sit there and say, man, just let it rip, Brother Mike. Just let it rip. Just don't worry about my feelings. He goes, I just want to know sincerely what it is that God wants from me. Just tell me the truth. And that is incredibly refreshing, because that's not always how we are. We're not always, hey, it doesn't matter how much this word hurts to me. We're often like, hey, listen, um, I'd rather you not be completely clear with me and upfront with me. Instead, oftentimes what we do is this, is sometimes we ignore the scriptures and we ignore godly counsel because here's why. Our flesh doesn't want to hear it because our flesh wants what it wants and what it wants is worldly wisdom. Are you guys with me? You know friends, you know people. Look, this is what happens. A lady leaves her, her husband, a, a husband leaves her spouse, whatever it is. What do you say? They won't listen to anybody. They won't listen to me or they won't listen to their pastor or they won't listen to their elders or they won't listen to all these people. Why? Because they don't want to hear it. Here, here, here let, let, let me tell you this. If you're in that condition today and you're sitting here and you're like, listen, I'm going to do what I want to do, but I don't care about seeking godly wisdom. I'm going to go to the world to find my wisdom because they're the ones that comfort me in my sin. Let me tell you something. If you want the very definition of something that is not wise, that would be it. The only thing that would be less wise is for you hear the wisdom of God and you blatantly reject it, which surprises me all the time. Of how many people can come and say, even as a pastor, say, I want to know what the word of God says. What does it say? And me tell them and go, oh, that's very clear. That's what it says. I need to pray on this. No praying on this. What do you mean pray on this? Why, what they're saying is, well, I need to determine whether I'm going to obey that or not. No, no, no. That's foolish. God's telling you, hey, this is how you don't hurt yourself. This is the truth that you need in your life. Here it is. And so what, what, what James is saying is he goes, hey man, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, pray for it, come to him. And the Bible tells us very clearly that God is going to give it to us. Now notice this, second question we need to ask ourselves, who are we to ask? So the first question is simply this, is what are we to ask? The second question that we, that, that we ask is who are we to ask? Now, You don't have to be really all that smart to understand. It says it right there in the text. It says, ask God, right? We're supposed to ask God for divine wisdom. He's the source of that wisdom. Makes sense. But when I ask that question, who are we to ask? What I'm saying is, what type of God is our God that we ask? See, that's what's important, that we know who he is. Because when we know who he is, we have more of a confidence of what we're going to get when we ask from him. And notice what he says here in the sentence. He says, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Did you notice that? 
Three things he says about the nature of God. Let me share them very quickly. First of all, he says that we can be confident when we come and ask God why, because he's generous. He's generous. Now, what James is doing, and we're going to find this as we work through the book, James is, is plagiarizing Jesus, okay? And that's technically okay to do, all right? Is to plagiarize Jesus. He's actually going back and pulling, I believe, from Matt, the teachings from the, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, because so much of what he teaches parallels the Sermon on the Mount. And so what he has here is, is he's basically taken from Jesus' teaching, and Jesus is a little bit more broad. This is what he said in Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or, uh, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good things to your children. How much more will your father, who is not evil, by the way, who is in heaven, will give good things to those who ask? What James is just trying to say is, listen, you come to God, and when you ask him, you are, you are asking the epitome of a generous God of all things. God is generous. He will give all good things. He will not withhold any good thing from his children. When you're sitting there, listen to me just for a second. Let this stir your heart for a minute. When you were sitting back and you were thinking about how miserable everything is and you were wondering how in the world are you going to get what it is that you need to be able to navigate, you sit and you think of a good God. He is a good, gracious, giving, caring God. First attribute. Second thing that we see is not only is he generous, but he's patient. How many of you need God to be patient, right? And so notice what, he, notice what he says. He says, knowing that he will answer without reproach. The word there is, is, is literally and graphically means to cast in one's teeth. That's kind of gnarly, isn't it? I mean, that sounds kind of disgusting. Basically, what it's talking about is, have you ever had your kids come and ask you something so many times that you can barely even open your mouth because you're so frustrated at that particular point, right? If you, you might not understand what I'm saying. So let me open my teeth, but just pretend they're closed, all right? So it's kind of like this. Hey, can you show me how to do this? First couple times, dad's super dead. Sure, son, I'll help you with that. Sure, baby, I'll help you with that. No problem. About the fourth or fifth time, can you not get it through your head? Do you not understand English? Do you speak any English? Do you not know what's going on? Right? And y'all look so spiritual. You don't do that. Liar, you do. All right? And so, we're, so and this is where we are. And what we, be, what we do is sometimes we learn about what God is like by dealing with our father and with our mother. Right? We begin to understand those relationships there. And God sits there and says, I'm not like your parent. He says, I'm not going gonna, gonna to lose patience with you. He goes, you can come to me, and if you come to me, I'm a good God. I, I, I'm the one you need to come to, but i got to let you know that I am extremely patient with you. Go ahead, ask me again. And he goes, and I'm not going to push you out. I'm not going to scold you for asking me like maybe your daddy did or whatever it is. Just ask me. I love it when you ask me because of my generosity. And then he sits there, not only is he patient, but finally he's faithful. Did you notice this last line? And it will be given. Did you notice it didn't say, and it might be given? Hey, you got some good chances? Hey, good 50-50. You know, playing the lottery, whether God's going to respond. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? It says, and it will be given. Now, because we're theologically astute and conservative theologically here at Celebration Baptist Church, we know that we have to address this particular passage of Scripture. Yes? Because we understand that these types of verses, not only here but throughout Scripture, are often abused. They're used by health, wealth, prosperity, gospel guys that are telling everybody, and here's the teaching, is if you want 
anything, anything at all. All you have to do is ask God. And if you just within yourself work yourself up with enough faith, then what you'll do is God has to do what it is that you are asking him to do. He's bound by his word. The problem with that teaching is there's a little bit of truth in it. God is bound by his word. But what we need to understand is that the Bible is always careful. The writers are always careful to, to help you and I understand that in that, when he says to ask and it will be given, that we understand that God is never offering up to us a blank check. Never. He's not just saying, you ask me whatever it is that you want, and I'm ultimately going to give it. Instead, he always qualifies it with what? He always qualifies it with this. If you ask anything according to my will, it will absolutely 100% of the time be done for you. And so we see this in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. It says, and this is confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears in whatever we ask, we know that we will have requests that we have asked of him. He says, we know that we're going to ultimately have it. Here's, here's our problem. We ask anything according to his will, God is going to give it to us. Here's our problem. We don't always know exactly what the will of God is, right? I probably, that's probably one of the biggest questions I always have. I'm trying to figure out what the will of God is for my life. Can I just suggest this real quick? We don't always know God's perfect will for each and every one of our individual's life. Do you understand that? We, we don't know exactly what that is and how he's working that out. And so that's when, when we pray to God and we go to God, we follow the, the, the example of Jesus. Jesus says, Lord, I, his Father, I pray that you would take this cup from me. And he says, but not my will be done, but your will be done. So many times in our prayers, this is what we're doing. We're saying, God, I don't know what you want from me, but, but this is what I think I want. This is what I think is a good thing, but I know you're a good God. I know you're a generous God. I know you're a patient God, but I know you won't give me something that's not good. So here, this is what I want, but God, at the same exact time, I'm just praying to you, saying, not my will, but your will be done because you know better than what I ultimately do. But we deal so much in what's not known, but what God wants us to do is deal with what is known. And the Bible constantly is telling us what the will of God is for our life. I thought it was interesting, Zach, earlier, he said, he showed us how to pray. He said, pray that God would send laborers into his harvest, right? That's what we should pray. And you know what the Bible's saying? If you will pray that, then God will send laborers into his harvest. Here in this passage is another one of those examples. He sits there and he says, hey, listen, I will give you what you ask according to my will. What is God's will? God's will is that when you are in the midst of the pit, that you will cry out to him and call out to him and say, God, I need wisdom because I want to be like you. And because he wants you to be like him, he's going to give you the very thing that you were asking for, the wisdom that he promised to be able to give you. You can take that home. But notice, notice something. It's interesting to me is my question is, but why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? I, I, listen, I need you really to hear this because this will help take away a lot of counseling if you'll just hear this message, okay? If you'll just hear what I'm saying. It's like in the first service, we're sitting there going, I could take every single one of you and show you exactly how this works in each individual life and how we're all guilty of this. I need the Holy Spirit and you to do the work, okay? Here's what I'm saying. Why is it then that when the bottom falls out, we might even want to be able to get spiritual help we might go to a pastor, we might go to the word, but you notice that's not really what the command is. The command is to go and ask God. The command is one of prayer. The command is for you and I, at the moment we begin to freak out, to consider it all joy, understanding what God is going to do in our life through this difficulty, step number two, pray. 
What does prayer do? It shows your ultimate and complete dependence upon God. God, I can't do this without you. I'm coming to you. God, I need you. And we call out to him. Why is it that we don't pray? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think maybe we don't go to God and pray to him because we're afraid of what he's going to say, maybe. I don't know. But I think maybe it might be, and, and you need to get this out of your mind. We believe in the priesthood of the believer, which means you can have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You don't need a priest or a pastor for you to be able to communicate with him and for him to communicate with you. Are you with me? And some of you, the reason that we just don't go is because you've got in your mind that God talks to other people through his word, but he just doesn't talk with you. Baloney. He's commanding you, come to me and ask. Come to me and ask. So what do we do? Who do we go to? We go to God, who is what? We go to a God who is generous. We go to a God who is patient. We go to a God who is faithful. Finally, he says, how are we to ask? How are we to ask God? Now, this is where the problem really begins to take shape whenever we come to this text of Scripture. This is where more confusion, I think, occurs than any other time right here in verse 6. Why? Because what James is going to do is he's going to put a condition on God answering your prayer for mercy. He's going to give a condition. God will do that if, and here's kind of the if. Notice, if you will, in verse 6. And let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. All right, let me just let, make sure that we understand what it is that James is saying. James is saying, hey, listen, if you're going to get what it is that you need, you need to have faith. A synonym for faith is to believe, which means you must believe that God is going to do what it is that he says he is going to do, uh, then you must do it without, and in the Greek verb tense there, it means no doubting whatsoever, no wavering whatsoever. You got that? And if that is truly what he's saying, I am a greatly depressed man. Right? I'm greatly depressed because this sermon was going and so encouraging in the beginning in verse 5, and man, it has fallen deep into the pit, hasn't it, at this point? Hey, guess what? Man, you need wisdom? Just ask God. God's going to give it to you, man. He's going to help you, and you're going to become more like Jesus Christ. But you know what? I have this contingency factor. It's not really dependent upon God. It's really dependent on you, on how well you can keep your faith together and really, really, really believe without doubting. If that's the case, I'm in big trouble. You know why? Because I am a big, fat doubter. All right? I'm a doubter. Are, are, are anybody else identifying with that at all? And so, so is this what he says? Let me tell you why I don't believe that that's what James is saying. But isn't that how we normally take the passage? Look, don't say you don't. I see people when they read this, they'll even say, oh yeah, but you just don't doubt. You just don't doubt. Somebody says something negative. Don't be negative. You, 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 you'll hex me. What are you doing? Right? And so here's, here's, here, here's why I don't think it's that way. Because that kind of thinking is anti-gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus completed it all for us. It's not contingent upon me, it's contingent on him. Now in the Christian life, I'm supposed to be completely reliant on me, and it's going to be reliant on me of whether God gives me what it is that I need or not. That's not the gospel. So what's the problem? The problem is this, and I will say the problem in a narrow sense and also a broad sense 
It's the problem that not only we face individually, but what we face in the South, in Nassau County, in, in, in Southern Christianity. We do not understand what faith is. That's the problem. We don't understand what he means when he says that he must ask in faith. When we think of faith, we think of faith in terms of thoughts, feelings, and emotions. You tracking with me? Thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And so, when we hear this scripture, we're like, well, I just got to have enough faith. I just got to believe enough. I just can't be negative. I can't be around anybody negative. I can't think any negative thoughts. And so you go around like this freaky robot that's completely devoid of any emotion and any reality within you. And what, what you do is you sit there and you're going pretty good. Then all of a sudden, this negative thought goes in your mind. And you're like, oh, I just jinxed myself, man. No, I can't possibly get what I need from God. I blew it. If that's the case, we're all in trouble. I don't think that that's what he's saying at all here. So what is he saying? Well, I think to understand this, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. So I think when we turn over to Romans chapter 4, verse 20, what we see there is that Paul is speaking and uses the same word for doubting. He just translated wavering or waver to waver there in Romans. And this is what he's saying. He's right about Abraham. Listen to what he says about Abraham. He says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Wow, that sounds pretty good, right? Imagine on your tombstone, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He's unwavering. He's stable in all his ways. That sounds promising. Does it not say yes? Okay, sounds good. So what does that mean? Does it mean that he was perfect in his faith? Does it mean that he never stumbled? No, because here's why. When you read this study, have you read about Abraham? This guy did not have it all together. When you read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 18, the Bible says that Abraham laughed when God first told him that he was going to have a son. Hey, you're going to have a son and you're going to be a great nation. <laughs> Come on, God. you got to be kidding me. Does that not at least sound a little bit doubtful? Okay, when God speaks to you face to face and you chuckle, right? And so it at least sounds a little bit. So what is he saying? I don't think, I think Paul's point is that Abraham never, uh, I don't think it's that Abraham never entertained doubt or ever felt the emotion of doubt on occasion. I don't think it's ever that, maybe over that long period of time before he saw the coming of his children, that he didn't have some days that he began to think, man, I just don't know if this is going to happen. Or to be able to feel sickened in his heart, going, man, is there something that I'm doing wrong that I'm not seeing this be able to come about? And him beginning to feel that he's being unfaithful to God. But yet the scriptures sit here and it says that he was unwavering. He, was, he, 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 made him, he, he had no distrust that made him waver concerning the promise of God. Well, if that's not what he's saying, then what he's saying? I think Paul's describing the consistency in Abraham's actions. I think what he would say is, you know what? Sure, there was a doubt that crossed his mind. He even struggled with it intellectually sometimes. And there was some doubt inside of his heart. And he wondered if he had the faith to be able to move over. But the reason that we're saying that he was a man of faith is not because of what he felt or what he thought. It's because of what he did. Did you hear what I said? Faithfulness is not defined so much of simply what goes through your mind or simply what you feel as an emotion. It's what you do. That's how James defines it in this book. Did you know that James uses the word either faith or believe some 14 times in this book? That lets us know, by the way, students, that that's a major theme in the book. 
especially a small book like this. And so what he does is whenever he uses faith, he completely defines it different than in our religious Southern culture. Our religious Southern culture says that faith is something that you think and it's something that you feel. The Bible says, no, it's not. Faith, true faith, is always demonstrated in what you do. That's where true faith comes. And so what, what, what I think that, I think what his, points is, his point is here, as he's talking not to those who are struggling and having some doubts in their minds or feeling doubtful within their heart, what he's doing is he's talking with those who clearly are doubting God because of their lifestyle. He's talking about a person who tries to sit on the fence. Do you know this type of person? That sits there and says, you know what, I'm going to seek the wisdom of the world and do the things that the world would have me do when that is convenient for me. And when it's convenient for me, I'll seek God's wisdom. I'm going to live for the world, and I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to be able to do. My faith is God's still out there for me. I know he's there. Have you ever heard this testimony? How do you know you're saved? Because I always know that God has been there for me. Dude, you are as lost as a dog in high weeds. I know he's always been there for me. No? That's, what, what are you talking about? This is really weird thinking. I knew he's there. Yeah, repent and believe he's there for you. But, but, but do you understand? And so what, what he's saying is, he says, don't you folks that are living for the world and you're not pursuing righteousness and you're not pursuing becoming transformed in the image and likeness of Christ, but you are living for the world and the things of the world, don't you think for any moment, any moment, even an inclination inside of your mind or heart, don't let it even flutter. Don't even let the idea come up in your mind or in your heart that if that's the way and that's the pursuit of your life, that when things begin to fall apart, that all of a sudden you're going to find it convenient to seek God and ask God for wisdom and think that he's going to give it to you. I'm telling you, if that is you, he says, you cannot expect God to give you anything. Now that's encouraging. So how's that encouraging? It's encouraging to get my life right with Jesus. Don't you think that God understands the motivation of our heart? Don't you think that God knows when you're sitting there and just merely using him? Don't you think if you're sitting there and go, I'm going to live whatever way that I want. Oh, my, my son is sick. My child is sick. Now, God, I, I need this. I need wisdom how to navigate. Because he understands the only reason you're asking for wisdom is not for your godliness, but for your happiness. God sees through that and says, you and I have two different goals. Because I'm a gracious God. I'm a giving God. I'm a nurturing God. I'm a patient God. I'm a faithful God. I will only give you what I promise to give you when you and I are on the same boat. You want righteousness? I'll supply everything you need according to the, according the wisdom, my, my wisdom in order for you to be righteous as I'm righteous. Do you see that truth? Now, this is encouraging in another way. The other way that it's encouraging is that some of us, and the majority of the talking that I do with other believers, is I see saints struggling when there's really no need for them to struggle the way that they do. They really honestly believe that because some thoughts of doubt cross their mind, or they're burdened, and they hurt, and they're insecure, and they're fearful inside their heart that somehow they failed God, and they just don't have enough faith that they ought to have. After the first service, I talked with one lady. She goes, I knew when you were going to get to this passage, this is my passage, because that's me. I can't be faithful enough. And then you told me that it's not about my faithfulness, it's about his faithfulness. She goes, and you, when you told me that, hey, look, in our weakness, it's impossible for you and, and me in our state not to doubt every once in a while in our mind. It's impossible for us not to be fearful inside of our heart right now 
instill our sinful state in which we are. And I'm telling you, you can feel those things and still be faithful to God. Because it's not what you're thinking, it's not what you're feeling, it's how you're living your life. Let me give you a quick example. Joy, she's going to be kind of the guinea pig this morning. You've heard her, her testimony about her daughter going to the mission field. And look, it's, it's got to be hard. I mean, we, I pray that all my kids will go to the mission field. I'm, I'm weird like that. But I know at the same exact time, there will come a time when you actually have to let them go. And praying that God will be used, and then you actually seeing them go is two different things, right? Some of you parents know that. And Joyce, for a long time, really struggled with the call in her daughter's life. Now, let me tell you this. She is proud of her daughter. And she knows that her daughter is doing what God has called her to do. And call, in fact, call us all to do unless he shows you another reason why we're not supposed to be going. But she struggled in her heart. And every time we talk, man, you could just tell tears are welling up in her eyes. And the more that I begin to hear her speak, the more I begin to hear her sit there and say, I'm failing. I just wish I had more faith. Because what's going on in her heart is she doesn't want to see her daughter leave. That's, that's normal, right? I think for most, I think our folks were happy when I left. But for normal families... They, they, they think about them staying at home. They think of grandbabies, you know, being in the house. These are all things that they ultimately apply. There you go. Yep, nudge each other. That's right. Yes, you know. And then now the daughter is going to be somewhere else. And then she's going to go by herself. She's a single woman in a city of 22 million people. A completely foreign land. Do you see the rub? Do you see the struggle as a mom? Do, do you see the struggle as a mom? As a parent? Do you feel it? And so she's sitting there, and I said, I said, Joyce, so what makes you feel like you're lacking faith? Because my heart is struggling so much with this. And I said, I know, but would it be surprising to you if I told you that you're being absolutely obedient in all that God has called you to? And I said, let me ask you some questions. She said, yeah. And I said, have you tried to impede your, your, your daughter's progress to the mission field to do what he's called you to do? She goes, no. I said, no, instead, you and your husband have, have, have paid and helped and financially supported her and told how proud you were and told how God's hand is on her life. Isn't that what you did in spite of the feelings that you had as a mom of wanting her so desperately to stay? You said, go, go. You never try to stop her. You only encourage her to do what God was calling you to do. But do you see the distinction? Many of us, for Joyce, and for many of us, we sit there and go, but I just don't feel enough. I don't feel confident. I, 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 I've got thoughts of negativity. Yes, you do. But yet, even in the midst of that, what God is looking for us to do is just to remain faithful in spite of it, in spite of the thought, in spite of the feeling. Can those thoughts and feelings lead us to disobedience to God? Yes, when we submit to them. When we submit to them and we say, hey, I don't want to do this and I, and I don't do this. And she cries out. She says, don't go. You can't go. Yes, that leads to sin. But the sin is not in the thought or the feeling. The victory in the true faith is in the action of what you do. I hope that that's an encouragement to you this morning. I feel like it should be because at one another time, you and I are going to meet up again and I'm going to go over the same exact thing and I'm going to say, see Sermon 2 of the book of Acts. James, sorry, wrong book, all right? I hope that that's encouragement to you. Look, there's two things I just want to finish with just very quickly. Number one, I want to encourage you to repent. I want to encourage you to repent this morning. What I mean by repent is I mean turn from the way of the world and seeking the things of the world and living in the world, and turn completely to Jesus Christ 
and by faith accept what he did for you on the cross, that he died on the cross for your sins. That's the first call. If you've never done that, or if you think you've done that, but the evidence is not in your life, if you're continued pursuing Jesus Christ, then call out for mercy and grace for him. But there are many of us that just need to sit back, and we just need to call out to God and go, I need your wisdom. I need to repent because I haven't been seeking you. I haven't been calling out to you. I've been trusting in my own wisdom, and that's why things are rough. God, I need your wisdom. I need you, but I need to understand it's because you're going to lead me into godliness. So there's another repentance for believers as well. But there's also, isn't there an element of rejoicing this morning? Isn't there an element of rejoicing is that we have a God who wants to answer our prayer and give us what it is that we need to be who he wants us to be? But isn't there also an element of encouragement to find out that some of you right now are not failing in your faith at all? You are actually growing in your faith because despite what you're feeling and thinking, you are acting obediently according to God. Something to rejoice about. Let's pray and respond. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this morning. God, I just pray that, God, there will just be a burden taken off many in here this morning. That, God, that they will understand that, God, it's by you and by your grace, God, that we are saved and it's by your grace that we live. But, God, that you are a generous God, a patient God, a faithful God. That you give us all that we need as we pray. So, God, just allow us, even right at this point, all over this place, people just begin to cry out for you for wisdom. God, give me wisdom in that situation that I'm in. God, let there be some who are here who truly don't know you, who have truly not been transformed by your grace and your mercy. God, let them come and say, I've been pursuing two worlds. But I realize that the Bible says that I, can serve, I can't serve two masters. I love one, hate the other, hate the one, love the other. 